Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening in. This is Robert. Hey, I'm Zach. Join us for each episode as we apply the gospel to dive into the inner workings of the Christian faith. Are you agnostic or atheist and want to understand Christianity better? Want to learn more about Jesus? Discuss the differences between the modern and early churches? or maybe explore some of the Bible's most interesting characters, then we hope you'll join us in Achieving Christian Thought. Uh, welcome, everybody, um, to episode, what? This is episode six, I believe. Um, so uh, if you've made it uh, with us this far, uh, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, we've got uh, Zach and we've got Robert here. Um, so hey guys, hope you guys are doing okay. What up, everybody? How are you doing? Um, so we're gonna talk. Uh, we're gonna talk some more uh, Jesus uh, today. So yeah. Uh, so what do we what what do we have on on the topic for this episode? Okay, so what we're gonna talk about. My part in this is we're gonna talk about fall of humanity, sin what that means for all of us and then i'll let robert speak for himself and then my section is actually going to be the response to that fallenness uh, basically the doctrine of salvation itself uh, we've decided to kind of jump into this one before we go any further it's because it's such a important central doctrine in the faith right sounds uh <clears throat> Sounds a little heavy, but we'll uh, we'll go ahead and dive into it. That, that we don't we don't we don't hang out in the shallow end. We go straight for the deep side <laughs> because drowning is more fun than being safe. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably. And the there's the podcast the logo. logo. There's our catchphrase. <laughs> 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 you you might want to edit that part out. I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> oh goodness. Fantastic. Uh, well, uh if you're all right with, I guess I'll go ahead and get started. Hey, yeah, um, jump on in. All right, so here I go. Um so in Christianity, uh one uh important thing that uh want to mention and talk about tonight is the uh, aspect of what we call the fall. What that is and what that means, because that's one thing, uh, at least if you go to any Bible-believing church, uh, you know, even if there's a disagreement on, you know, secondary doctrines, uh, they all will at least acknowledge the fact that there is a fall, there's an issue with the human condition. And so, I hope is that I can articulate uh, that uh, core doctrine of Christianity tonight um, and and give us an idea of what that means, what that is, and uh, and go from there. Um, so, really quick, um, kind of like how Robert Roberts touched on it a little bit whenever we talked about natural suffering and the problem with our world and the problem with evil, you know, all these things kind of hint towards this. So this is um, an actual um, 
discourse about that in in full and like how how evil came to be um and things of that nature um at least according to scripture um when god created the heavens and the earth and all all that was in it um he also created angels um and these beings these supernatural entities have um uh personhood as well now it's not the same personhood as say like humanity because we're made in the image of god but they do have a sense of individualism uh like for instance whenever um in the scripture uh, the angels whether it be the angel that talks to daniel or it's the angel that talks to gabriel or excuse me not gabriel but uh, talks to um zachariah and it also later talks to um uh, uh, Joseph, uh, they they give names for themselves, and so there is the, this distinct personhood that they have, uh, a, a sense of identity, um, and that is also included with the being that we call Satan. Uh, there's not a whole lot about scripture about Satan. Uh, you know, obviously, there's some references for him in the New Testament. Uh, there is some evidence or uh, um, some uh, talk of him in the Old Testament as well, such as like the serpent of old, um, and that's actually what I'm going to be talking about tonight. Um, so you, uh, at least in in biblical Christianity, in the beginning, God created everything, and everything was good. Humanity was good. There was no sin. There was no evil. There was no none of that stuff. None of the stuff that we like scratch our head and said, you know, like, if God loves us, why are we in this condition? Um, so, off the bat, you know, it was good, and everything in it was good. So, what happened was, is shortly thereafter, after, crea after the creation of humanity, a uh, creature comes along on the scene, and he tempts Eve, and he also directly tempts Adam and they both succumb to that temptation to to do to disobey God essentially. In so doing, that is what creates the the fall, so to speak. And the fall isn't just humanity. I mean this is had um repercussions across everything. It had the way an animals interact with each other, the way uh probably even the way uh, food is even processed in our bodies. The need for meat became, you know, just there's there's a whole lot of um, factors that happened in this fall. And I mean, as big as creation is, it has affected all of creation. Um, and at the heart of it, at the beginning of it, was the being known as Satan. Um, and although we don't know exactly his motivations of why he did what, I mean, in Scripture, you have sort of like, the focus of the Scripture isn't on like the angels and, you know, what were they doing before the creation of man, you know, when did God create the angels? None of that stuff is actually answered correctly, so there's a lot of like... Um, uh, I guess, kind of like stringing different bits of pieces of Scripture together to kind of get the ideas that we have about angels and also about Satan. But we don't have a whole lot of information because, honestly, 
the issue of the Bible is that it is for humanity. It's about the humanity's solution to the sin problem. Um, and the fall happened. You know, obviously there was the um, the affected all of creation. It also affected um, humanity. And while we don't have a physical death, like immediately whenever Adam and Eve sinned and God promised that, you know, because you've done this, death will now be a thing, didn't immediately physically die right then and there. But their second component of who they were in Christianity, uh, there's at least the theory that um, hu that a human is not just their physical body. There's the body, but there's also the spirit. Um, not so much a theory, more of, uh, you know, the Scripture presents it as this, that there is a body, and then there's also a spirit. Um, and upon the fall, our physical bodies would die in time. Our spirits were dead and that goes into you know like someone says they're an atheist or you know agnostic or of another religion or what have you it's not that those people can't do good things like they see a need like for instance someone you know uh has a need for a bone marrow transplant it doesn't mean that they can't see that need and that make that decision to do that transplant but their spirit is still not regenerated it's still um dead and so again that that isn't to say that you know people can't still do good things but the spirit itself is dead and there's no good uh acts that can change that and that's why we needed somebody as a human step in and fill that gap for us because every single human being that's been on this planet is dead in their spirit. They, they can't do the things that God can do. So it required somebody else to fill that gap for us um, and at least in biblical Christianity, um, that solution was found in Jesus. All right. Thank you, Zach. Uh, that was a great little explanation of uh, the, his, uh, the history and reality of fallenness. Going into the second part of the story is to respond to that fallenness. And, of course, that goes into salvation itself, which really drives into the very heart of Jesus is and why he came to the earth from a Christian perspective. And so to really understand what salvation is, uh, the interesting thing about talking about salvation is that it's actually a subject that, at least on the surface, everybody wants it and everybody understands that we need it. Big debate and the point of disagreement between Christians and the rest of the world is exactly what does that look like and how, <clears throat> and how do we get there? Because you look at all the different religions of the world, even all the just the different philosophies, philosophies of life, of meaning, all actually tend to ask the question, what is wrong with the world and how do we fix it? Uh, the response of Jesus, of course, is that 
we are separated from God by the sin that Zach's been talking about. The reason came, Jesus came was to kind of bridge that gap between us and God after that separation was established. And so uh, the idea of salvation is rescue. It's the central idea behind it. It's being set free of everything that has been holding you back. And, of course, what's holding us back is the sin nature we were all born with, the fallenness of the world around us. So to be set free, to be rescued intentionally by a rescuer, that's the gospel. And so, basically, it's the idea of Jesus coming, giving his life to pay a ransom, to deliver us, not necessarily from Satan or from hell, but really from the wrath of his own Father. Since God has to respond in holiness to evil, when he sees the evil in us, he has to respond to it. And that was actually Lucifer's idea from the beginning after he fell. Since he could not harm God, he wanted to harm what God loves most. And he thought, well, if I put this evil that I know that Yahweh burns against by his very nature, if I allow it to slide into his children, that's going to harm him emotionally far more than anything I could even hope to do to him physically or metaphysically because of how great he is. And so God already knew what Lucifer was going to do, allowed him to do it, and then put that plan in motion. Now, one thing that does divide some denominations is exactly what entails salvation. That's definitely important because you read the letters of Paul, and this is not some denominational and uh, backhandedness or bashing it's simply reading the scripture and you read the letters of paul he does clearly say in the greek that the thing that defines salvation is your faith in him jesus living person and whether that's legitimate or not and what's defined as faith when you compare it for between paul and james they actually kind of bounce the ball back and forth show us both sides of the coin, what faith is, and then show us what faith is not. A lot of people hear faith and they think it's either blind faith, like the idea that I'm going to believe whatever I want to, regardless of what evidence is. I'm going to shut my eyes and turn away and just not think about it. That's the Richard Dawkins a delusion view of faith. Then you look at James, and he's talking about what faith is not, is is not blind faith, nor is it simple assent to intellectual facts the way we would assent to mathematics. I can find what a hypotenuse of a triangle is, and it will be factual. That will be the longest side of the triangle. I don't have any relationship with that triangle. I never once grew fond of any of my math homework. <laughs> Amen. I... <laughs> That's like kryptonite. Don't talk about math. No, no. I would do it, take it home, and throw it away. I wouldn't even do it a lot of times. I would just not do it at all. <laughs> and James even says that, you know, if that's really the definition of faith, then the very demons that turned against God to begin with, they uh, technically have faith, and that goes against everything we know about their judgment. So what they're talking about is um, an understanding in the mind. That's kind of what James is fighting against. But it goes beyond understanding in the mind to carry over into direct action. Not only do you understand and know what reality is about who he is, what the problem is, who is required to save you, um, who is able to, and what act caused uh, caused it all to be, 
but it goes into how you're going to respond to that in your daily life as well. You choose to trust him in his power as God, obviously, and in his provision as the Savior, that what he did was enough. When you accept that, then you submit to him and commit yourself to him as God so that what he says goes. Your life, your thoughts, everything is based around who he is. It's so much more uh, destructive to your own self, some people, the way they see it. It's so much more destructive to your life pattern to try to have this kind of faith because we were talking a week or two ago about the difference between Jesus and superheroes. It's easier for us to cheer on the superhero because watching the superhero in a fictional story does nothing to touch your personal life, but Jesus gets right in your backyard. If he is who he claimed to be, and if he did what he claimed to have done by dying the way he did, when he did, then he has to be the authority over all of it, and that scares people. I mean, and you think about it, it's like whenever something has, you're you're basically surrendering all authority from what you want to do, handing it over to God saying, all right, here's my life, do with it as you see fit. And the struggle that every Christian has is realizing the extent of that and that daily surrender to that authority that he has. You know, it's like, does God have a say in my checkbook? Absolutely, because he's Lord. He has uh, a say in how I treat my wife. He has a say in how I treat my son. Uh, and he has a say in all those things, which is why um, it's it's a daily struggle to to uh, say, okay, it's not my will, but yours. Exactly. I remember reading a story about a Christian apologist. Uh, people out there who don't know the word apologist is just people who do apologetics, and they go out and they defend the faith. There was an apologist who actually struck up a, a light friendship with one of the professors of one of the schools he spoke at. And they were eating. This was not in a classroom setting or, de, or a debate. They were sitting in a restaurant eating, and they were simply talking about this stuff. What the apologist went at was that uh, he was going after the Big Bang, and we've talked about that on a previous show. He said He asked the professor, in light of everything that I have shown you, in light of everything we've argued... You yourself just admitted while you're eating your french fries that there's no way to get around all the logical flaws that we saw in your your view of things. Why do you not believe in a God? Why are you not a theist when everything is telling you to do so? And the professor kept saying, because it's not logical. And the apologist was trying well, not to get in your face too much, but... How, how is it not logical when you yourself keep admitting that it's the most logical thing I've presented? And the professor eventually got angry, and actually he blurted out, well, if this isn't true, I get to sleep with whoever I want. And he just kept eating and didn't say anymore. And the apologist kind of sat there. I was like, well, I know. (laughs) And it kind of shows that if there's anyone out there and the idea of God taking control of all things in your life is scary, one, I totally understand that, but Two, as someone who finally decided not to let that get in the way, I mean, I would beg you to consider openly and honestly allowing that to be because it really is the best thing that I ever chose to do. Uh, He knows what is good for you much better than I ever will. 
And I remember when I first heard, had the gospel clearly presented to me by a church member. Had one of those little packets to help him walk through it step by step. There's a little diagram about a throne. And either you will sit on it, um, some object or person or goal will sit on it, or Jesus will sit on it. And he, I actually felt a what you call a pang of fear in that last diagram. Because I thought, well, if Jesus is on the throne for real, and I mean, if he says it, then it must be. And it's just the idea can be scary. So you no longer have that essential control of who you can be, what kind of life you can lead. But he worked on me for over a year to get past that idea. And now looking back, I just wish that I had gone for it a lot quicker because even though the idea can be scary, once you get to this understanding of what the gospel provides, because the thing that really got me from A to B, and I believe that it was the Holy Spirit working on my perception of things, he's not really trying to take all the fun away from you. He's not trying to replace it with very bland, vanilla substitutes of the life you used to have. But what he's really doing is giving you this blanket of security that you wish you had deep down if you think about it. I mean, think about all of the panic out there over COVID-related things, over war-related stories, and that's just over the last couple of years. And just the security blanket of, yes, he's in control, but he is in control. You don't have to figure anything out, necessarily. Call us to go forward and do what we can, figure out what we can, but he is the one who knows the future and controls the future him and him alone and so since he's the god of our salvation he's also the god of our future our liberation our uh, personal peace our mental stability our emotional stability our sense of meaning and purpose he's the god of our vocation he's the god of our stories um, he sees every life that we could have lived in the possibilities and the life that we're going to live based on our decisions and he's the one he's the only one who can see the entire chessboard and knows which moves to make. So if you are the one trying to do the moves that you want to do, but you can't see the whole board like he can, it does sound scary, like a scary idea because it takes away that personal choice. But what you're really doing is you're withholding the I'll say freedom because he simply chooses to let us uh, decide whether we want him in involved or not. Even though he is all-powerful, he respects that. We are the one withholding that freedom from the only person who is able to actually win the game as quickly and efficiently as possible. And We're give, give, uh, taking control of our own lives in the sense that we don't really understand our own lives from the ground up the way he does. Hindness, uh, they say vision is only the best in hindsight. Well, God has the hindsight that we fail to have before it becomes hindsight. So we're actually withholding that power from the only one who actually knows how not to abuse it. And and also with that, talking about hindsight and, and things like that, the other aspect of it is we have limited perspective. We might think, you know, X is good for us, and then, you know, two years down the road, find out X was the worst thing for us possible so we have that limited perspective and and that's one thing i feel like that um 
if if you surrender to Lord and say, okay, not my will, but yours, kind of helps prevent you from making those. Not that you you won't still mess up and you won't still sin and you won't still mess up and and do things you shouldn't do, but it's that the desire to let go, it's the desire to say, okay, not my will but yours, because the uh, the whole. I mean, and I've I've heard the analogy like this. It's like you can look at all the rules and the regulations and look at it as a, a fence or a wall. The reality of it is that wall, you know, I mean, a lot of people will look and see that wall and say, you know, that's keeping me from doing the things that I want to do. It's keeping you from doing the things that you think you want to do until you're actually doing those things and then you have regrets and things of that nature. The wall so to speak, is there to protect you. It's not there to, like, uh, spoil your fun. It gives fun parameters because otherwise you will jack things up. I mean, it's keeping it simple. I mean, if you go off and, you know, you sleep around or whatever, you don't think about the toll that has on you physically or the um, the connections that you have to people that you may not should have had, you know, whether it be you end up becoming calloused to those to whoever you end up marrying and you know falling in love with, or you know insulting the person that you end up being with because you've slept around. I'm not saying that um, you you can't find that healing and you can't find that forgiveness and that you can't find know uh happiness or anything like that but it by having those that wall those parameters it keeps you from uh going off the deep end because that's what we as humans are really good at doing we're really good at going off the deep end and um and uh sometimes we need god to say hey whoa 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 don't do that you're i'm actually i know it's it's kind of like this it's like I am the creator and I know what's best for you. I know, you know, all these different scenarios that you think might be good aren't actually good. If you follow my plan for you, you will have a fulfillment. You will have a joy that surpasses all the people who jump over the wall, so to speak, and, and do whatever and think whatever and act whatever. So, Okay, so let's let's touch on this a little bit more. So, um, let's say if I if I take the role of an audience member out there, let's say I'm either on the fence about Christianity, or let's say I'm whole atheistic, and I'm listening to you. And let's say let's say you're starting to make sense. I'm kind of starting to come around to to what you're saying. When I make that profession, or when I say, okay, you know what, I'm sold, I believe in Jesus, you know, let, let, let's do it. What, uh, what happens? So uh, talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Um, obviously, I came to Christ when I, was, when I was a kid, 
and as a kid you're stupid you don't really know much um sadly i don't know that i fully remember exactly i remember the circumstances of why i became a christian i don't really remember a lot of the the feelings and a lot of like mental stuff that happened because i was you know a, a young kid um i and most of my life the majority of my life i've been a christian and i've just kind of lived with it and i went through a period you know after and i talked about it on episode one during my testimonial how kind of after high school during college and and kind of through my uh, younger adult years i i kind of quit going to church and i kind of fell away from christ even though i had professed my faith early on but and I'm recently, over the past four years, rediscovering my faith and trying to restore and, and repair that relationship. But let's say for our new new people who make that decision, does a contract get mailed to you with an end user license agreement? Do you receive like this brochure in the mail of here's your new life plan? Like, what does that look like for for someone who makes that leap, like, like what happens to you? Okay. Um, so kind of going back to what I was talking about, you know, uh, during about the fall talked about the, uh, two aspects of a person. You have the physical person that's, you know, lives and breathes and functions their, their organs and such, you know, they Lord willing, they work properly and all that. Um, so whenever a person becomes a believer, happens is their spirit who what which is what i was saying earlier that was dead is what we call regenerated or uh i mean that's kind of a the churchy term so i want to be careful uh how to say it it's <laughs> it's basically like your spirit goes from dead to alive and and what that means is literally your spirit was dead it was in darkness and whenever you receive Christ as your Savior, you then are awakened. Your spirit is made alive in Christ. And you have the sealing of the Holy Spirit within you. And I will, since I kind of touched on the spirit aspect of it being dead and now alive, I'll let Robert kind of handle the other parts of that. Yeah, so... Uh... Like he said, the idea that you have been changed, you're somebody else, and it's not some, um, some for some people it's an overwhelming emotional experience, but it doesn't necessarily have to be if it's quiet, it's just this firm conviction that this is who he is and this is how things are going to change. There doesn't have to be an explosion and a whoosh of hot air for there to be a change in your life. That's just a promise that the Holy Spirit is a real person and he is going to indwell you once you make that choice. Uh, one of the tragedies of modern church culture in America, at least, is the uh, youth group prayer conversion experience. If you lead kids in a prayer, you have them raise their hand and walk down to the front of whatever youth event you're at that gives them false assurance sometimes that that act is what sealed their faith. They They themselves didn't really understand or... They put so much faith in that event itself to seal the deal, to make sure they're not going to hell and they're good. 
but there's no committed life change from that point on. I've heard several stories of, yeah, I got saved, quote unquote, when I was a kid, or yeah. I was at summer camp and all my buddies were doing it. Fast forward three years later, and I'd already slept with this girl and was trying some stuff like substances when my parents weren't looking. And so you think, well, their committed to life change was either very short lived or not at all. And, you know, you can't have a nasty judgmental attitude towards people like that, but you do know that that happens constantly, is people have the wrong view of what they were meant to do in response to Christ. What is real faith? And so, but I would say that, you know, of course, uh, me, uh, Zach, and me briefly touched on the invisible or metaphysical aspects of this. You are changed. It's a promise. But because you're changed, now what does that look like? And that's the, the juggling act of the genuine gospel is that says that you don't have to do, visibly, physically do, anything to be saved it's that simple invisible commitment to do that saves you beforehand without giving people this idea that they can play with the commitment and there's no real commitment in their heart it's just this emotional reaction to a great worship song but if you're truly committed it will spill out into good actions but as you take the first steps obviously the first steps would be to begin to pick up a scripture and begin to learn it and that's very overwhelming for almost anybody uh, we grew up watching tv in this in this modern world we didn't grow up with massive tomes of literature for the most part so the average person isn't that comfortable picking up a 2000 plus year old document but uh for those out there who might hear this just start with the gospel of john um, i may have said that before i'll say it again at some point but it's a phenomenal place to start. It just talks about who Jesus is. But also, plug into a local church. Make sure that you seal that deal. Some people, it that idea is scarier than it is to let Jesus have control. And the thing is, if you really intend him to have control, if you really meant that five minutes ago, just know now, if you didn't know then, that that commitment involves becoming committed to a very messed up, mess, messy church group that needs you. Um, someone who uh, is meant to plug into a, a part of a, a body and become involved with the mission. That's God's view and vision for the church. It's, it's his people, all their flaws and mishaps coming together for a greater cause that's greater than their differences. So that's what it will ultimately look like is picking up a prayer life and slowly making that stronger, picking up a scripture study life and slowly making that uh, more and more in depth, starting with a basic reading. That's what the first thing I did when I got saved in high school was I just wanted to read the Bible cover to cover like a novel. And I wanted to finish it the first time before I graduated, as long as I could say that I had read it. I just, and yeah, I flew through it quicker than I should have. There were some times I could have stopped and reflected, but I just wanted to say that there were, uh, there were no gaps in what I had touched. I wanted to at least say that my eyes had touched every page of the Bible then. And that launched, <clears throat> launched it into that. But, uh, and the encouragement to get plugged into a church. 
and of course the dynamics of what to look for in a church, what not to, that that's another discussion for another day, if at all. But those are my starting points is like Zach said, the invisible, just know that you're changed and the visible is just plugging into that life and into his people, wherever you're going to find them. Those are the basic starting starting blocks of what it is to experience salvation from step one. And 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 one thing that I would I'd point out is, you know, I talked about you know the enemy. I talked about Satan in the beginning, and there's um, scripture in the New Testament talks about him uh, as a uh, a roaring lion on the prowl, seeking to consume whoever he can. Um, so there's this picture of this predator out there, um, uh, not the, the predator, like, from the 1980s, uh, uh, Schwarzenegger movie, but a literal spiritual predator, um, that is seeking to destroy ever, if he cannot keep you from heaven... Is see like say you become a believer, he is then trying to choke out the light that you can bring to not just your own family but also to the people around you. And so, point of coming together in the church is Christianity is not meant to be a uh, a lone adventure like you know. Um, the Lone Ranger. It's not, you don't handle it on your own. You try it on your own and Satan's going to come along and pick you off. Um, and so what, basically what that means is there's strength in numbers. There's strength in genuine believers. Now it doesn't mean like you go don't know anybody and you start, you know, vomiting out your life and the things that you struggle with, but you find this key influential people who are um, or have a solid walk, more mature walk in their walk than its spiritual walk than you do. Finding and having that accountability, uh, you know, help me in my prayer life, help me in my uh, reading the scripture, help me, you know, be more submissive to what God wills for me in my life. You can't do that on your own. Because one, even though you're a believer and you're you're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, at the same time of that, you also have a war going on within you, as as Paul talks about. There is a, a two sided uh, battle. There is the re- renewed you, the 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 you that's alive and the Spirit, the you know the Holy Spirit. And there's also, for lack of a better term, the dark side of you. And they are constantly at war. And the more you are around God's people, the more accountability you have, the easier it is to, is to live and run that lifestyle and, and, to, and to finish well, as, as Paul talks about. Whenever you go off on your own, you're easy pickings for the enemy. And that's whenever... It's like you you look about and you hear about this TV uh, evangelist or this uh, a uh, apologetics teacher or whatever who has this double life. Nine times out of ten, he 
they're like and they they have this double life and it's and it catches up with them either after their their death or or what have you nine times out of ten they have no accountability or you know they're not in church like they should be they don't have uh people speaking into their life and saying hey look I'm I'm going to church and I don't I see that you're not going to church. What's what's going on? What's up? You know, those people that help hold you accountable. You need that in your life because you are literally at war every single day. That's the thing about Christianity. It is not easy. It is simple in that it a child can come to faith at an early age. It's not easy because you have the world that says you need to function, you need to make your own decisions, you need to make your own life. And then you also have your own uh, self, the, 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 the dark side, so to speak, that wants to take control, wants to do these things, wants to be short-termed. You have that war within you. And the reality of it is, if you do not have others or sisters, for that matter, coming along beside you, you will shipwreck yourself. And, and I want to go back real quick because um, both of you touched on this and I'm not trying to be snarky or anything. Uh, it's, a, it's a general question or it's a genuine question um, that I really mm-hmm. want to know the answer to um, because the two of you, you know, obviously know a lot more than I do. Is there any other, like when when you're comparing someone who's someone who's an atheist or who's you know doesn't quite believe in Christianity? When you're comparing Christianity to other religions around the world, are there any other religions that promises salvation? just through an act of believing or an act of faith that doesn't require any sort of here's what you need to do to better yourself or here's the acts or the service or the things you have to physically do uh, to be saved Um, you know i can name a, a few religions off the top of my head where you have these these you know these codes these rituals these services these things that you have to do to obtain whatever version of salvation they offer but i can't think of any that's just believe just have faith and then the good deeds the good works will follow after Right. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I, I, I always hesitate to make sweeping general statements, Mm -hmm. but I would say Christianity is the one religion. I say religion in the sense of belief system, not in the sense of, you know, obviously Christianity is a relationship. Um, so I mean, to make that distinction, so I would say that it's, it's Christianity is the unique in that God did the work. He was the one that came into our world, took our place that we deserve. Like I said, you know, before talking about how each of us has a, 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 a physical body and also a spiritual aspect of ourselves. He's the one that took the penalty that I deserved. Um, you know, the wrath of God 
is satisfied in Christ, and and Christianity is the only religion. You know, I mean, obviously, somebody can out there correct me if I'm wrong. That Christianity is the only religion where God says, "Hey, cannot save your." That's one thing in the um. Oh, sorry, uh, in the um, in the one of the Jesus' classic sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. He says in the very beginning of it, he says, "Blessed are those who are bankrupt in spirit." Um, and what that means is, like, you cannot do it on your own, and you realize that you can't do it on your own because theirs is the kingdom of heaven, meaning that God has done what you cannot do. He has bridged that gap. He has paid the wrath so you don't have to. Jesus took the cross. He took all of the sin. He took all the separation that I should have had. He bore it himself. I don't think there's any religion, unless it's like some wannabe knockoff on Christianity out there that makes that claim. Robert can speak for himself. Yeah, and I'm standing behind that uh, statement as well. To my knowledge, there's no other religious system in the world actually takes that approach because if you look at it from the perspective of a religious founder or uh, the cult leader of a group, that is one of the most dangerous things you could tell your people is, you know, if you have faith in your heart, if you believe this and you want to commit to this and you're genuine, that's enough. Now, now that would be very comforting to most people, and that's the appeal of the gospel itself, obviously, but it's actually really destructive if you want to hold down the fort of a religious group because you've got to give them the fullest incentive to really become involved. Many churches have that problem is, you know, 10 to 20% of the people do all the work. and But you see about other uh, religious groups that I would consider outside of reach of the gospel. And what, the reason I say that is there are some things they teach that are very, very adamantly um, in opposition to what's taught in the central gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, the Jehovah's Witness Church, the Mormon Church, they teach that some things that are just radically different from core Christianity. This is not denominationalism. This is uh, These are changes made to the very core of the message. Everything we've talked about through all these episodes changes dramatically, if one of those is correct. But uh, they will teach their people. Uh, the reason I'm getting to this, I'm getting ahead of myself, has been the this uh, head scratch of why are evangelical churches having such struggle getting people cooperate and why are these more cultic groups having such a widespread um, act, level of activity among their numbers and at, fir at first glance there are some uh, skeptics and challengers who try to say that it's a, a weakness in the evangelical church and these other groups are moving beyond them to be more lively and more dynamic but the truth is they're doing this is because they are literally afraid for their eternities because these people are being lied to and told that they have to obey these things in order to ever have any kind of assurance of salvation. They, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to commit yourself not only to this belief system, but you've got to commit yourself to our institution. Um, Mormon men are taught that if they not commit to uh, the door-to-door -door evangelistic efforts that everyone's familiar with them, then that is something that they lack in their own salvation. They need to work out their salvation, and that's part of it. 
um, to kind of make a leap from, you know, the Bible Belt to uh, the the Far East, the the uh, is the near Middle East really the Islamic world. They'll actually teach their people, uh, for men at least, that they have to make a trek to the town of Mecca, where Muhammad lived at least once in their lifetimes, or else they lose that aspect of their salvation. They are slowly and painfully working out their salvation. None of these groups have that assurance until the moment they've passed away. Then they get to find out, you know, the game show ends and they open the door and find out what they won. <laughs> but once the door is open, whether you got a brand new car or you just want a, a new pair of socks. once Smelly you, socks. Smelly socks. These are eternal socks to keep the metaphor going. <laughs> and so, eternal smelling socks. That's so, not good. Once the door is open, and it, if it's a sucky gift, there's no going back. These people live their entire lives without that assurance. And I don't say any of this, uh, and I always try to anticipate what some naysayers out there may say is what might come across is, well, this Christian is out here, you know, patting his group on the back pointing the finger at other groups. I'm not saying this because I'm a Christian. I became a Christian because I started to understand this dynamic. Is the fact that this gospel teaches the opposite. This gospel says that, you know, if you've put these things in place today, someday when that door opens, it will be the best possible prize. You can have assurance of that now, if mm. that faith is genuine. And And an important distinction is... So people will talk about, you know, like, well, because, you know, James mentions works, things like that. And people are like, well, works are part of it. Um, and what I've, how I've always explained it is works, good works are an outflow of that inner commitment. Um, and whether or not what kind of works you do or don't do that does not affect your salvation. What we're talking about is sanctification. There's two separate things in the Christian life. The Christian life, once you embrace Jesus, that's it. It is a done deal. It is sealed in the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Um, now, sanctification is a process, and it's based upon your efforts. What I mean by that is, you know, your understanding of what Christianity is and your understanding of, you know, what the Bible teaches and you going out and being effective in ministry and being effective in your daily walk to be the light, as God calls us to be, that is subject to your own decisions that you make every day. That kind of goes into what Robert was talking about, reading the scriptures, your prayer life, and things like that. And the thing is, with belief, there's no set standard for it, in a sense, for sanctification. It is a marathon. We are all running the race. No one is first place, no one is second place. I mean, you might become a believer, and you might run past people who've been believers you know, 10, 20, 30 years, and you might develop faster than they do just because your your walk is more dedicated, whereas they've allowed other things to kind of take their focus off of their spiritual walk. 
So that's an important distinction that I think needs to be made because oftentimes people will point to that saying, well, you guys are talking about going out and serving the community and helping the community. Yeah, and that is us displaying the gospel to people. That's bringing our words, that's us sharing the gospel, that's being the light that God's called us to be. That doesn't make it, that doesn't make your salvation or break your salvation. That just shows the commitment that you have. It's an outward working of your inner commitment, if that makes sense. So you're sitting there telling all of these listeners out there um, who may not be Christians, may be on the fence, you're telling someone out there who they've adopted all the puppies they serve at soup kitchens every thursday they help little ladies cross the street they donate to charities they um do all of this stuff um none of that matters uh they have to believe in in this guy that lived two thousand years ago but someone who has clubbed baby seals, who's murdered people, who does all of these bad things um, on their deathbed. They could profess faith in, in Christ and they have eternal um, salvation in heaven with God. Um, and so I, I kind of ask that in, in kind of a, a jesty way but that's just because i've i've heard that argument being made mm -hmm. and how that's hard to swallow for a lot of people who don't believe so um uh and and i think that's hard for people to really grasp or, or put their heads around yeah and and the, um one thing that i'll say is um the answer to that question uh, as far as like someone can go out and do horrific, terrible things their entire life, at the end of their life, they can make that decision and and be saved. The answer to that is yes. Um, the person who go out and he and they serve, um, and they do all these things for their community, they do all this stuff, and um, all these things, you know, all these quote unquote good things. And that that means nothing, and the reason why it means nothing is the condition of their soul, the condition of their spirit. Whenever someone you know makes the belief in Jesus Christ, and, you know, asks you know for them to God to forgive them of their sins, etc. When that happens, Jesus literally takes your place. And regenerates, and the Holy Spirit comes in, resides you, and regenerates your spirit. There is no act, there is no giving to a charity, there's no, no thing that you can do for your community that will change your spirit. Only the acceptance of Jesus Christ and the coming in of the Holy Spirit is what changes you. So, I'll allow Robert to kind of give his two cents on that as well. Yeah, uh, like he said, it, it is very unfair. I'm straight up saying that. Some people will be shocked that a minister is saying that about his own belief. But Jesus himself said that it is unfair and God gets the glory for it. 
um, we're not going to talk about parables this time. That's coming up, but very quick one sentence summary. One time Jesus tells a story about people who work different hours and yet they all get the same pay. The whole point was it is not fair because genuine fairness, according to the story of the gospel, we would all be going to hell regardless. Uh, Hitler and Mother Teresa are all into, in the same pot because it's how we were born. It's the nature with which we were given. And that's actually one thing I'd love to break down in culture really quick because I know we're kind of pro we're probably running out of time for this episode very quickly. But um, one thing that I would love to have people understand, and I run into it all the time, is this idea that we're playing football morality. So uh, people with more or less points, you manage not to be your serial killer. Great. You at least get a point for that one. <laughs> uh, then you go into the, the positives. Uh, okay, not only was I able to never be a serial killer, but I was kind to my spouse. I served at my school. I did all the things in the community. I was at every potluck for the elderly. I cleaned up the side of the street. But what they think is, you know, this racks up points or loses points. They actually believe that the idea is it's everywhere. I mean, everywhere in pop culture, literature, cartoons, uh, movies, casual conversation right here in reality. This idea just pervades that heaven has always been the happy place for the good people. Hell is the bad place for the evil people. And a lot of times it comes across like the church has always been using that as a way to control people, especially in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. That is not the case. That is not the, the kind of gospel we preach. It's not a point system. Simply the idea that you are lacking. No matter how hard you try, you are not perfect. Nobody is going to stand up and say they're perfect, but that's exactly what the gospel is saying. When we say everyone is a sinner and they get offended and they say, well, nobody's perfect, it's like you literally just gave a synonym for the same sentence I just said. Got offended, and then to try to, to cover that up by agreeing with me—that's the point. That's what it means to say everybody's a sinner. Is nobody is perfect. Heaven is only for perfect things. So God had to pay a price to allow the imperfect into perfection. And so this idea of uh, the man who you know murders puppies, and the man who uh, reads books to children. Just for the joy of it, say that the the evil guy is getting his reward he does not deserve. He is getting salvation at the eleventh hour. The man who reads for kids does, uh, doesn't go to heaven because he never actually accepted the gospel itself. It's it is not fair. But it, for one, when you're the one who's guilty, it is a massive comfort. So that that is a way out if you want to have it. It's really that easy, but people can't believe it. They struggle with that. Then the sad thing about the person who does all the good. Now, this is the, the nitpicky part. It's not true of everybody, but with many, many people, human nature being what it is, they do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. So mm -hmm. Deep in their heart, the person who serves the most could gloat against the people who don't do as much. Many times they do that simply so that they, not because they care about the elderly or the orphans or the list goes on, they simply want to be known as people who love those people so that the public can pat them on the back. Mm -hmm. So when that happens, 
if we could really see everybody's motives, if we could go to every charity worker and see their motives, there is always going to be something that taints that, and that that is the the real root of the thing. The rest of it are just symptoms of the illness. The gospel tries to go right at the germ that caused it. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's not a point system. It's not the idea that since Jesus saved you, he's made you a good person, your goodness gets you to heaven. It's the idea that nobody's good, and this is the only way to get to heaven. And this is it or nothing, and I'll explain why, and then I'll close with it. I'll basically close this episode out to explain why would we hinge our faith on the idea you've got to take this and accept this and believe it. Now, you read most uh, skeptics' take on it. They think it's the church ever since the Catholic Church rose up in ancient Rome think we've used this as a power play you've got to accept what we are telling you if you want to go to heaven therefore once you accept it now we have power over you because we're the ones who tell you what jesus says so it's a a religious simon says the reason the gospel says take this or else you will not go to hell not or else you will not go to heaven you will go to hell if i can speak right the reason uh, we go with that well, we go with it because Scripture says it. The reason Scripture goes with that because the story says that God lost us. We were separated from him. He knew that the way to do it was to have an invitation. So it's like a great big bus, and everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is slowly getting on that bus all throughout time. Ancients, medievals, moderns, our own grandchildren someday it's saying, I'm making a new world, a new community, people who will love me, who will never again cut me off like they did in Eden. And if you want it, take it. And so he is taking those few who say yes, the people who get the golden ticket, go to go to the, get to go to the chocolate factory. <laughs> and when that day comes, all the bad things will be wiped away. And all the good things that were lost will be put back in place. It's only those people who've accepted that. One, so we will have servants. These are people who, by their free will, have already chosen to kneel. We'll have a kingdom full of humble, willing servants. It will be a complete safeguard against repeating the fall. There will be no more Genesis 3. We won't have paradise for 50 years, and then someone has a child that child grows up to be the next Cain, and all of a sudden we fall all over again, and there's an endless cycle. It'll be those who've already been born and lived to make a choice. Those alone, the ones who would have said no to the fruit, those are the ones who get to go back into the new paradise to ensure that the new paradise never falls like the first one did. And that's such a good point to end on and i hate to ask this but i do know there's going to be listeners out there who are going to just absolutely just um uh scream uh into their uh, uh speakers if 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 i don't ask this but what do you say to those people who we we've talked about how person who volunteers at soup kitchens adopts all the puppies does all this wonderful stuff 
they don't go to heaven without the belief in accepting Jesus, but someone who's a, a career criminal, serial rapist, serial killer, all of this stuff, they can accept Christ on their deathbed. They get to go to heaven. So I, I hear the next question that, that some of our listeners might have. Well, if all I have to do is believe, what incentive do I have to, to try to be a good person? Couldn't I just take that proclamation of faith, believe in Jesus, and I could spend the rest of my life doing whatever I want? I could, I could drink, I could party, I could sleep around, I could do whatever, and I'm still saved because I made that profession. Um, so, I, so what do you say to those people who, who think that there's not any incentive to, to try to be a good person kind of after that if all it takes is that that faith and your works and and how good of a person you are uh doesn't really matter well one thing i would say to this um whenever i was talking about sanctification um god invites us to participate in his ministry that is an invitation to to grow that's an invitation to honor him with our lives that's an invitation to then be an influence to others to you know minister to these people and etc and 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 in that way impact the kingdom and what i would say to the people who um uh, to talk about deeds and this and that and whatever, the reality of it is, is ever, it's like, what is, what is the reason to um, become a believer? If your reason to become a believer is so you don't go to hell, you've, you've kind of misunderstood the point of it. While not going to hell is a, you know, is a sliver, I mean, it's a very, very good thing. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that. But the whole point of Christianity, the whole point of it is that you now have a restored relationship with God. You have a restored um, uh, life. And in, in so doing with that, you love, I mean, that's the reality of it. God loves us so much that he sent Jesus into our world so that we could be with him. Uh, I would say that those who just make the commitment so they don't have to go to hell, they've missed the point of what becoming a believer is. It's so that you have a relationship with God. It's so that like, I can sit right here beside me and have a conversation through prayer with God. Knowing that he hears me, knowing that he understands, knowing that I have that relationship that, that creates a desire in me to love him more. Not like once you get married you know, and you, you fall in love with someone, um, you want to do the things that make them happy because you love them, not because you hope to get something from them. You do it because you generally 
care about. And that's the thing with God. He has emotions. It talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. It talks about um, all those things. Because God actually ha has emotion. He has joy. He has um, pain in the sense that, you know, whenever someone chooses not to repent, he gives them what they want, but he does not want that for them. So it's like, as a believer, I love God, and because I love God, it changes my conduct. Not because I want to be a good boy, it's because I love God. It's like if I'm I'm married to a wonderful lady named Carrie, you know? You know, I, I tease her and play with her and stuff like that. But I also know what deep down inside of her, you know, what she needs to hear. Also, what she wants to hear from me. I, you know, show that love to her and, and, and for her. And she reciprocates that to me, that, you know, my feelings of need of love or whatever. And because of those things, we have a deeper relationship if I just had that relationship just so I could get what I wanted from her, and that's all it was, that's not a true marriage. That's not a true love relationship. That's just me getting what I want and doing whatever I can to get what I want. So it's two um, misconceptions there. It's about loving God because I love God and because it's coming from that um, uh from that emotion that whenever I do say something that I know I shouldn't say because, you know, scripture teaches about something, I say something dumb. Then it's like, I have, I've dishonored God. He loves me. He, he's not changed that, but I know I've hurt him or I've hurt people who love him or people that may one day love him. And so it's like that strive, love God and to love other people. kind of make it uh short and sweet in my response the question would be simply my response would be just basically uh if you're asking that question that alone is already evidence that you might not really understand what faith is uh the person who would have that attitude is i'm going to grab this and i'm going to run with it and then i'm going to do what i want as long as i can get my get out hell free ticket are the ones who don't really understand what faith is because if your faith is genuine i do wish people who preach the gospel could make it more clear a lot of times if your faith is genuine the way that the bible presents faith and when you make that commitment commitment to change and to obey and to follow begin that lifestyle is going to fall into place automatically your commitment is genuine if you mean it, God will know. If you don't mean it, God's going to know. So it's like having a, a truck coming at you. You can believe that there's a truck, but if you don't get out of the way, people wonder whether, one, if you're sane, but then they wonder if you really <laughs> saw that thing like you claimed it because no sane person stays in the way of the truck. Genuine belief will always lead to some kind of action, and if it leads to no action, that faith wasn't genuine at all. That's a really that's a really good way to say it. 
Um, no, this was this was great stuff, guys. Um, thank you so much for um, all of this. I hope uh, everyone listening. Um, I hope you were able to learn some stuff and, and have some stuff to take away from this. Um, uh, Robert, what do we have coming up on uh, the next episode? All right. So for the next episode, we are jumping into some of Jesus' parables. And for those who don't know the word parable, it's literally just a word for a te- uh, a story that has a teaching point. You might hear, hear uh, might have heard of the term fables for morals. A parable is a little different, but we'll talk about that next time. We'll share some of Jesus's more famous stories. All right. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you, Zach. Thank you, Robert. Uh, another yes, another great episode. Thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll see you all next time.